following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Well, it is bittersweet. Weeks from tomorrow, Kyung and I will be boarding an airplane and going to Korea. Um, four and a half years here. It's been an exciting learning and growing time, but we're also excited for what God has for us when we get to Korea. Today we're going to be continuing in Matthew chapter 5. It starts the Sermon on the Mount. There's a story of a wealthy man who visited a foreign country. And while he was there, he was fascinated by a powerful microscope that allowed him to study flowers. He was a kind of a, had a hobby as a botanist. And when he looked at those flowers through the microscope, he was amazed at the beauty and detail that he saw within the flowers. So he decided to purchase a microscope and take it home. He enjoyed using it. And then one day, before he was eating one of his favorite meals that he liked to indulge in, he decided he was going to look at the meal through the microscope. And to his dismay, he found tiny living creatures in the food. And since this was one of the favorite things that he liked to indulge in, he was perplexed as to what he should do. He concluded there was only one option. He had to destroy the instrument that disclosed the tiny organisms that was distasteful to him. So he smashed the microscope. You might say that that was extreme foolishness. But I ask a question to all of us here this morning. Don't we do the same thing with God's word when it exposes the things in our nature that we find uncomfortable? Or things that we would prefer not to see? We are no different than the man who destroyed his microscope. We do the same with God's word. You can go ahead and follow in your own Bible or on the screen as I read the passage this morning. The Sermon on the Mount starts with the Beatitudes. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, The poor in spirit are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Those who mourn are blessed, for they will be comforted. The gentle are blessed, for they will inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed, for they will be filled. The merciful are blessed, for they will be shown mercy. The pure in heart are blessed, for they will see God. The peacemakers are blessed, for they will be called sons of God. Those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So here's my challenge this morning. How do I preach a sermon on a sermon? in a sermon that was given by Jesus. No small task. 
There was a preacher named Wilbur Reese who once preached a message in which he presented a listener's guide to sermons. Reese stated that sermons ought to be rated in the same way that movies were rated. G sermons are messages that are generally acceptable to everyone. They contain phrases such as, go ye into all the world and smile, or what the world needs is peace, motherhood, and fewer taxes. Sermons such as these are often greeted with the response, oh, wasn't that marvelous, or wasn't that simply wonderful? Everyone loves a good G message, and they will never offend anyone. There are some people who would refuse to listen to a message that was not a G-rated message. PG sermons are for more mature congregations, and they have mild suggestions for change, but they're subtle enough to allow the preacher to backpedal and change his meaning if he finds that he has inadvertently offended anyone. An example of a brilliant PG statement would be, the either-or of the existential situation provides a plethora of alternatives, both specific and nonspecific. When one grasps the eschatological aspect of incarnational Christology. You know that someone has preached a message like this when people walk away in wonderment, shaking their heads and saying things like, that was deep. Most thought-provoking. Of course, if you've done a PG sermon really, really well, nobody actually knows what you said, but they are not willing to admit it. Then there are the R-rated sermons. This is when the preacher tells it like it is. These usually indicate that he has an outside source of income and a fairly healthy self-esteem. <laughs> Sermons like these are usually followed by comments such as disturbing or controversial. These sermons definitely aren't for everyone, only for those who wish to be challenged in their spiritual walk. <clears throat> Finally, there's the X-rated sermons. These are the explosive ideas of the kind that got the prophet Amos run out of town, and Jeremiah, Jeremiah thrown into the well. When you preach an X-rated sermon, you preach them with your suitcase packed and the moving van ready. Comments range from shocking and disgraceful to being in poor taste. But when we think about it, Jesus was the master of the X-rated sermon, and the Sermon on the Mount is the granddaddy of all X-rated sermons. You may object and think, that's not true, this is such such an easy, peaceful message. Some of your translations may have happy instead of blessed. But if we think that, it's because we're not reading this passage the way Jesus preached it. Mark Twain was once asked if he found the Bible hard to understand. Twain responded by saying he wasn't bothered by the parts he couldn't understand as much as he was bothered by the parts that he did understand. We try to rationalize a Sermon on the Mount, or we try to explain it, but we got right down to, to where the rubber meets the road, and we took the Sermon on the Mount at its face value, it would change the church, and the church would change the world. It was preaching like this, they got Jesus crucified. We may try to soften the blows, but turn the Sermon on the Mount into a GPG or even R-rated sermon. But that's not the way Jesus intended it. The eight Beatitudes are attitudes that should be in every Christian's life. The first four focus on our relationship with God, and the next four focus on our relationship with each other. 
before I dive into the passage, let's make a few preliminary observations. First, we know that Jesus has already chosen the twelve. We see that when we cross-reference Luke 6.13. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' instructions to his followers, the message that they are to take to the people. These eight attitudes or characteristics can only be lived out by Christians. And as difficult as it is for us to live it out, it would be impossible for a non-believer to try and live these out. These spiritual standards come about only through the surrender to our Savior. Jesus is not saying, live like this in order to be saved. He's saying, live like this because you are saved. Our conduct must flow out of our character. A Christian is one who embraces and embodies the Beatitudes. Another way to say this is if we would look at a crowd, we'd be able to spot those who are Christ followers by exhibiting these eight characteristics. And the Beatitudes are a package deal. We can't pick and choose the ones that are easy for us. We must, must display each of these traits, and they're not just for the spiritual elite. There are not eight different groups of disciples, each showing one of these characteristics. It's easy to make the mistake of saying, I'm not merciful, or I'm not a peacemaker. Oswald Chambers refers to these words as lovely and poetic, but spiritual torpedoes. John Stott wrote, The Sermon on the Mount is probably the best-known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it is least understood and certainly the least obeyed. While Jesus teaches content throughout the Sermon on the Mount, these opening words deal with our character. He is emphasizing throughout the sermon that his disciples are to be different. And Stott suggests that Matthew 6, 8, is the key verse in the entire Sermon on the Mount. Do not be like them. They are not to take their cue from the people around them, but from him. And so prove to be genuine children of their Heavenly Father. Tozer once wrote, There is an evil, glaring disparity between theology and practice among professing Christians. An intelligent observer of our human scene who heard the Sunday message and later watched the Sunday afternoon conduct of those who heard it would conclude that he was looking at two distinct and contrary religions. It appears to me that too many Christians want to enjoy the thrill of feeling right but are not willing to endure the inconvenience of being right. And Jesus wants us to seek the applause of heaven. Some translations have utilized the word happy instead of blessed. One author even called it the be happy-tudes. And we can laugh at that, but it's a very shallow understanding of the depth of what Jesus is talking about. Our definition of happiness is often a very diluted version of what Jesus' expectations are. Our happiness is often dependent upon circumstances. And when circumstances change, our happiness changes. But what Jesus was referring to is a happiness or joy that is dependent on the assurance of God's blessings 
sometime present, but often future, and not on our current circumstances, and it lives deep within us and is unshakable. When you look at the eight Beatitudes in verses 3 to 10, verse 3 and 10 are bookends and speak of a present assurance. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. The other six are future promises, will or will be. There's partial fulfillment for us now, but complete fulfillment when Jesus comes again. The same sequence appeared at Mount Sinai. God redeemed Israel and reminded them of his blessings before giving the law. The Beatitudes are not separate statements, but each represent solid truths for living. Each stands on its own, but is linked progressively to the one that follows, and each builds on the previous one. (coughs) Now let's go ahead and peel back the layers on the onion on these verses. Verse 1 to 2, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, First, we may doubt the possibility that Jesus could address large throngs out in the open. But in the 1970s, there was an archaeologist and a professional sound engineer who set up equipment along various places of the Sea of Galilee where the Sermon on the Mount was believed to have been given. And what they found is that it was a natural amphitheater, both speaking towards the water and speaking from the water. There's a lot going on in the first two verses. There's an allusion to Moses going up on Mount Sinai when he received the Ten Commandments. Many commentators and theologians view Matthew's portrait of Jesus as a new Moses or a new lawgiver. But Jesus is not proclaiming anything new. He's teaching a legitimate interpretation of God's will that's contained in the Torah. We could view this as the formal inauguration of Jesus' kingdom. The king sets out his plan by which his kingdom is identified and his rule administered. The accepted site of this location is on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And quick question, has anybody been to the Sea of Galilee, taken a trip there? So we know that it's not mountains, because two years ago the church went and we went on the trip there also. It's more rolling hills, but it's... it's relative. If you're from Kansas, it's a mountain. If you're from Colorado, it's just a mosquito bite. Um, but beautiful rolling hills. But Matthew uses the expression mountain elsewhere to refer to the hill country around Capernaum. And Jesus moves away from the crowds in general because the primary audience for this message was his disciples. The first circle is a 12 that he had just chosen. The second circle were other believers or people who followed him. We know this from Luke 10 when he sends out the 70 or 72, depending on um, which translation you have, and also Acts 1.15 when the 120 were gathered in the upper room praying. So we know that Jesus had dedicated followers besides the 12. And then the third circle was the crowds who were just curious or even those who were against him because we read it through the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that there were scribes present. There are three clues that point to the significance of the Sermon on the Mount. First, Jesus began to teach when he had sat down. 
for those that know how rabbinical teaching worked, a lot of times they would walk around and they would say things to their disciples as they were walking. That was kind of unofficial teaching. But when a rabbi sat to do a lesson, that was an official teaching. That was like a professor doing a foot stomping. So the fact that Jesus sat down shows the importance of this message. Matthew goes on to say that it began to teach them, or some translations have, when he had opened his mouth. This is not just a fancy way of saying he said. Rather, in the Greek, the phrase has a double significance. It is used of a solemn, grave, and dignified message. It is used for, for instance, a saying of an oracle. It is a natural introduction for a very important message. It's also used when the person really opens up their heart and speaks from their deepest feelings. So we see that Jesus' message, the importance and what he feels from his heart when he starts this. Matthew in his introduction wishes us to see that this is the first, first official teaching of Jesus. is the opening of his mind to his disciples is a summary of the teaching that Jesus habitually gave to his inner circle. And the word blessed refers to those who are and or will be happy, fortunate, or to be congratulated. Because of God's response to their behavior situation, it occurs at least 55 times in the New Testament. And the Old Testament is often used to portray outward prosperity. But in the New Testament, it's almost universal in the use of sensing God's approval for our actions, for our righteous behavior. It implies blessedness from pure character and sin as a source of all misery. Blessedness is filled with the light of heaven, which thrives on trial and persecution, glories in tribulation, and not only endures but overcomes the world and expects its crown in heaven. In other words, bliss can mean supreme happiness, utter joy, or contentment. In theological terms, it means the joy of heaven. The Beatitudes, in effect, say, Oh, the bliss of being a Christian. Oh, the joy of following Christ. Oh, the sheer happiness of knowing Jesus Christ as Master, Master, Savior, and Lord. The very form of the Beatitudes is a statement of the joyous thrill and radiant gladness of the Christian life. When we look at the Beatitudes, a gloom-filled Christianity should be unthinkable. The world can win its joys and the world can equally well lose its joys. A change in fortune, a collapse in health, the failure of our plan, the disappointment of an ambition, a change in the weather. But the Christian has a serene and untouchable joy which comes from walking forever in the company and the presence of Jesus. I mentioned that the first four Beatitudes are people-focused. Verse 3, poor in spirit. In Greek, there's two words for poor. One describes a person who's a common laborer. They serve their own needs. They're not rich. But they're also not destitute. The other describes absolute and abject poverty. The root word means to crouch or cower and describes the poverty of those who are forced to beg on their knees. Describes a person who has nothing, 
at all. It's the humble and the helpless. Someone, because they have no earthly resources, put their whole trust in God. And those who believe this will display two characteristics from the opposite side of a coin. First, they will become detached from material things. And they will become completely attached to God. Because they know that it is only through God that their hope, their help, and their strength comes from. When we think about these two characteristics again, we see that's exactly the opposite of what the world would have us to believe. The world teaches material. and teaches we can do it on our own. The world teaches that we don't need God. That's also characteristic of the false prosperity gospel, that if we're blessed, we have more and more and more stuff. The beginning of repentance is a recognition of one's spiritual bankruptcy. When we realize that on our, in our own strength, our own ability, it is impossible to become righteous. Those truly poor in spirit are those who realize that things mean nothing and God means everything. Apart from Christ, we are spiritually powerless and bankrupt. It doesn't matter if your resume says pastor, elder, deacon, worship team member, church member, churchgoer. It only matters that it says poor in spirit and redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. If we put all these ideas together and reworded this first beatitude, it could read, Oh, the bliss of those who have realized their own utter helplessness and who have put their whole trust in God. For thus alone can they render to God that perfect obedience which will make them citizens of the kingdom of heaven. In verse 4, those who mourn. And the Greek word here is the strongest for mourning. It's the word used when somebody dies. It's the word used to describe Jacob's grief when, Joseph, when he thought Joseph was dead. It is a grief which takes such a hold of us that it cannot be shaken. It gives not only heartache, but unrestrained tears from our eyes. This beatitude can be viewed in three ways. First, just a literal meaning. Sorrow can show us two things. It can show the kindness of others when charity is offered and the comfort of compassion of God. It can show the sorrow we see in the world around us that's so, so broken. We learn from the first beatitude that we are to be detached from things, but we were never intended to be detached from each other. Christianity is caring. Blessed are those who care intensely for the sufferings, sorrows, and needs of those around us. Think of how the world would be if we didn't care about each other. We all went our own way. There was little doubt about the first two meanings, but the overwhelming thrust of what Jesus is talking about here is a deep sorrow for our own sins and unworthiness. What was Jesus' first word when he began to preach in Matthew 4.17? Repent. We can't repent until we are truly sorry for our sins. 
Often what changes us is when we suddenly confront something which opens our eyes to the sin around us and what sin does in the world around us. Is when we realize how spiritually bankrupt we are apart from Jesus. There's a heart condition that needs mending. A question for each of us, are we really sorrowful when we sin? And if sin doesn't bother you, that should bother you. It is only when we are truly sorrowful for our spiritual bankruptcy and the grace of God can be brought into the picture. And that is what the cross does. What goes through your mind when you see the cross? Probably many thoughts. But what we should consider is that that is what sin can do in the world. Sin can take the loveliest life and smash it on a cross. The cross should open our eyes to the horror of the sin around us. Christianity begins with a sense of our sin. Blessed are those who are intensely sorry for their sin, heartbroken for what their sin has done to an infinitely holy God and what it did to Jesus on the cross. When we experience that, we will be comforted. We will have a penitent heart, and God never despises a broken or contrite heart. We read that in Psalm 51:17. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. God, you will not despise a broken and humbled heart. There was a man who continually rededicated his life and, and prayed the same prayer every time, every time he came up for rededication. <clears throat> he said, Lord, take the cobwebs out of my life. His pastor had heard this message or this prayer once too often. The next time the man came up and prayed that, the pastor answered in prayer, Lord, kill the spider. Repentance requires change. The way to, to the joy of forgiveness is through the desperate sorrow of a broken heart. If we put these ideas together, we could read the second beatitude as, <clears throat> Oh, the bliss of those whose hearts are broken for the world's suffering and for their own sin. For out of their sorrow they will find the joy of God. <clears throat> Verse 5, the meek are gentle. So I'm going to do an unofficial survey here for guys. If somebody was to describe you, who would want the first words out of their mouth to describe you as to say you were meek? Zero. Okay. None of us want to be known as meek. It's the idea of being spineless, submissive, or ineffective. However, the Greek meaning for this word was one of the great ethical words. The philosopher Aristotle had a method to find every virtue as a happy medium between two extremes. There was the extreme of excess and the extreme of defect. Between these two was the virtue, a happy medium. An example would be somebody who spent way too much money, a spendthrift. At the other end of the spectrum was a miser. However, the virtue was a generous person. Meekness by Aristotle's definition would be a balance between Excessive anger and excessive lack of anger. The first way to view this is blessed are those who are always angry at the right time and never at the wrong time. We have to understand that selfish anger is a sin. Something done to us and we want to retaliate 
against that person or those people. However, selfless anger can be used to change the world. Remember Jesus overturning the money changers' tables in the temple. There was a second meaning for the Greek word meek. It was regularly used for an animal that had been domesticated, trained to obey the word of command, to respond to the reins, an animal that had learned to accept control. The meek are those who are powerful but who have the maturity and grace to use that power for constructive instead of destructive purposes. Meekness is not weakness, but rather strength under control. We could reword this to say, blessed are those who have every instinct, every impulse, every passion under control. Blessed are those who are entirely self-controlled. But there's a problem the last part of that phrase. None of us can exercise that level of self-control. Instead, blessed are those who are completely God-controlled. It's a paradox that only in serving Jesus and submitting do we find perfect freedom and peace in our lives. But there's a third possibility, too. The Greeks always contrasted meekness with a term that is translated lofty-heartedness. True meekness or humility removes all sense of pride. Without humility, we cannot learn. And the first step in learning is acknowledging our own ignorance. Without humility, there's no love. For the beginning of love is a sense of unworthiness. Without humility, there's no true Christianity. It leads to our understanding that we are creatures and God is the creator. And without God, we cannot do anything. The third way to view this verse is blessed are those who have the humility to know their own ignorance, their own weakness, <coughs> and their own need. Those that have this meekness will inherit the earth. Moses was arguably the greatest leader ever. But we read in Numbers 12:3, Moses was a very humble man, more so than any man on the face of the earth. But Moses was far from spineless. Think about this the next time your Boy Scout camping trip or VBS or English camp has a few difficulties. Moses led over one million people on a 40-year camping trip through the desert. So when we stop and consider the progression through the first three Beatitudes, we recognize our spiritual bankruptcy, we are deeply sorrowful for it, and we begin to respond humbly to our trainer, Jesus. Meekness is power harnessed for good. <clears throat> the third beatitude in its entirety could be reworded, Oh, the bliss of those who are always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. Those who have every instinct, impulse, and passion under control because they themselves are God-controlled. Who have the humility to re- realize their own ignorance and their own weakness. For such people can indeed <clears throat> rule the world. I think my stand is sinking. It's probably safe to say that everyone in this room does not truly know what it means to be hungry or thirsty for any extended period of time. We live in an age where it's easy to get food, and often too much of it. 
But that wasn't the case in the ancient world. There's no McDonald's, 7-Elevens, no Food Panda. A working man's wage was one denarius, which was not a life of luxury. And the average common laborer ate meat once a week. The average worker was never far from real hunger and actual starvation. And thirst was an even bigger problem. Although in Thailand we can't drink straight out of the tap, we have ready access to bottled water. But most of us come from countries where we just turn on the tap and we drink water. We think nothing of it. The houses in the ancient world didn't have running water. It required trips to the nearest well, and the term near was often very relative. It could be miles away to get water. Think of traveling in those days of being caught in a sandstorm. Often all that could be done was to turn your back to the wind and wait it out, getting parched in the process. Has anyone ever actually been caught in a true sandstorm? One. Two. Okay. I had three when I was in Iraq. One was almost like the movie The Mummy. It was that high. And even with all the gear on and turn your back to it, the next time when you went to take a shower, you wondered how sand got in those places. You can use your imagination. It's probably not too far off. But it's true. But think about those days when they didn't have all that gear. And sand would get in everything, and they'd be thirsty, and sand would be in their mouth. But they didn't have water. Maybe some of us have experienced these shortcomings for a brief period. The hunger and thirst that Jesus is talking about here is not something that could be satisfied with a snack or a cup of water. The hunger speaks of a hunger on the level of starvation. The thirst is at the level of severe dehydration. Jesus is speaking of the spiritual and not the physical. A person who is starving for righteousness, either for their own life or for the world around them is not a blessed person. But our blessing comes from the assurance that all righteousness will be fulfilled one day. This beatitude is both a question and a challenge. How much do we want goodness? As much as the person starving for food? As much as the person dying for water? How intense is our desire? Most of us have an instinctive desire for goodness. But is this desire vague or is it sharp and intense? How different would the world be if we desired goodness more than anything else? When we understand this beatitude, it is the most demanding and the most frightening, but also the most comforting. Those who are blessed are not necessarily those who achieve goodness because in our sinful state, It's impossible to be completely righteous. But rather those who long for it with their entire heart, with their whole being. Blessedness comes to all who, in spite of our failings and sinful nature, passionately love and seek God. Further along in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6.33, Jesus said, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. One other point, when you look at the structure of the original sentence in Greek, 
This isn't the satisfying the hunger with just a piece or a portion. It's not one slice of bread. It's the entire loaf or the entire pitcher of water. It begs the question, how often are we content with partial righteousness? It's good enough. We don't need to do any more. But this verse calls for us to be never satisfied with partial righteousness. We must pursue complete righteousness. To reword this, to say, Oh, the bliss of those who long for total righteousness as a starving long for food, and those perishing of thirst long for water, for they will be truly satisfied. Now we switch to the people-centered Beatitudes. The merciful. Being merciful combines characteristics of being generous, forgiving others, having compassion for those suffering, providing healing. And it reflects the prophetic theme in Micah 6.8. Mankind, he has told you what is good and what the Lord requires of you. To act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. Mercy may be God's most fundamental attribute. Mercy is a theme that runs through the entire New Testament. Since we are forgiven, it's expected that we forgive others. James 2.13 For judgment is without mercy to the one who hasn't shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Think of the story of the unforgiving debtor in Matthew 18.35. So my heavenly Father will do will also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. And then in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6.12. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. The Hebrew word for mercy cannot be translated fully into our language. Nothing captures the depth of that word. It really means to be inside that person, to actually be experiencing everything that they're experiencing, to see what they see, to feel what they feel, to hear what they hear. And we will never truly understand what another person is going through until we attempt to get inside their mind and their heart. When we think about it, isn't that what Jesus did when he came to earth as a man? He saw through human eyes. He felt with human feelings. He thought with a human mind. He experienced everything that we experience. God knows what our life is like because he came right inside our lives. God came to us not as a remote, detached, isolated, majestic God, but as a man. The ultimate example of mercy is God coming to us as Jesus. This beatitude could read, Oh, the bliss of those who get it right inside other people till they can see with their eyes, think with their thoughts, feel with their feelings. For those who do that will find others do the same for them. We'll know that that is what God and Jesus Christ has done. The pure in heart. It's a natural result of the previous five blessings and character qualities. The king grants purity of heart. He gives not only forgiveness of sins, but also removes the impurities from our heart, empowering us to grow into holiness and out of our impurities. 
The original Greek had three meanings. It could mean simply clean. You wash your clothes, W-A-R-S-H. I know people laugh when I say that. I'm from Ohio. It was our figure of speech. It can also mean used for grain that has been sifted. The grain in the, the, the chaff has been separated. Or milk or wine that doesn't have water added to it. Or a pure refined metal. Something that is not mixed with anything else. <clears throat> and according to Schopenhauer, Schopenhauer's Law of Entropy, if you put a spoonful of wine in a barrel of sewage, you get sewage. If you put a spoonful of sewage into a barrel of wine, you get, any guesses? Sewage. A little bit of sin affects everything. A simple but effective way of interpreting this is that it implies the absence of impurity or filth and contains a singleness of purpose without any distraction. Now our heart is undivided. When we do something or help someone, are we doing it? from a pure heart or deep down are we looking for something in return even if it's only words of praise if we do something special do we bask in the notion of what others see in us John Bunyan once told that he once told that he preached well that day and he answered sadly the devil already told me that as I was coming down from the pulpit steps this beatitude demands self-examination. Some questions to ask ourselves. Is our work done for a mode of service or of payment? Is our service given from selfless motives or from motives of self-display? Is the work we do in church done for Christ or for our prestige? Is our church attendance an attempt to meet God or is it to keep our respectable public image intact. To examine our motives is both challenging and shaming because even the best of us will often fall short. A Pharisee was nothing more than a religious pretender, someone who outwardly portrays faith but inwardly is far from God. It might be safe to say that there are more Pharisees today than there were in Jesus' day. The pure in heart display a single-minded devotion to God that is a result of internal cleansing by following Jesus. Holiness is a prerequisite for entering into the presence of an infinitely holy God. And Jesus likely had a dual meaning for the phrase, see God. The pure heart is unhindered in its ability to understand the heart and person of God in this life on earth. We're better able to see and hear God even if we never truly understand him in totality. And only the pure, forgiven heart is able to enter heaven to enjoy the presence of God for eternity. This beatitude could read, Oh, the bliss of those whose motives are absolutely pure, for they will someday be able to see God. And there are the peacemakers. Peace is first internal and spiritual. It is not physical, military, or political. Understanding the original language, either Aramaic in Greek or Shalom in Hebrew, it never means only the absence of trouble. 
It does mean everything which makes for a person's highest good. It doesn't mean the absence of evil, but the presence of all good things. The blessing is on the peacemakers, not the peace lovers. If we love peace in the wrong way, it can actually make trouble and not peace. Have you ever been in a work environment where the boss avoided conflict at all costs or refused to address substandard performance? I had that happen in the military. In the end, it hurts the entire organization because they refused to address the issue. The peace that the Bible calls blessed does not come from the avoidance of issues. It comes from facing them, dealing with them, and overcoming them. This beatitude demands not passive acceptance, but active facing of things in the making of active facing of things in the making of peace, even when the way to peace is through a struggle. Notice that the peacemakers will be called sons of God and not peaceful people. It implies doing a godlike work. And among scholars, there are three views on what this beatitude could mean. First, blessed are those who make the world a better place to live. Second, the inner conflict raging inside of all of us. Paul's example of doing what he did not want to do and not doing what he wanted to do. Each of us have two conflicting animals inside of us, the good and the evil. And the one that wins is the one that we feed. And third is the peace that the Jewish rabbis focused on. They taught that the highest task which anyone can perform is to establish right relationships with other people. And that's the idea that Jesus is pointing to here. When we think of the Great Commission in evangelism, conversion normally doesn't happen from one meeting. It's an establishing of a relationship with people and living with them. I'm sure we all know people who are opposite of the peacemakers. They enjoy being the center of trouble, bitterness, strife, either involved in quarrels or they start them and walk away. That they are present in every niche of society and unfortunately in too many churches. These people are actually doing the work of the devil. However, the people who are the peacemakers bridge the gulfs, heal the breaches, sweeten the bitterness. Those that divide are doing Satan's work and those who unite are doing God's work we could reword this to say, oh, the bliss of those who produce right relationships with others, for they are doing a godlike work. And then we get to the last beatitude, the one that we all love and look forward to. Righteous who suffer persecution, and we're expected to be glad and rejoice in it. All the characteristics that we've looked at in the previous beatitudes are not welcomed, are accepted by the world at large. And have you ever noticed that Jesus is pretty much a straight shooter when it comes to conversations with people? He was crystal clear about what was happening or what was waiting to happen for his followers. He came not to make life easy, but he came to make us great through him. There may not be a direct correlation between how well you follow 
the previous seven Beatitudes and the level of persecution you face, but it's probably a pretty close correlation. And for many of us, persecution would seem distant or something we just read about. However, even in this room, there are those who have faced persecution where they've lost everything and had to flee for their lives. Think about the people in the time of Jesus. A stonemason could be asked to build a temple for a pagan god. A tailor could have been asked to make robes for a pagan priest. There were a few jobs that didn't conflict with being a Christian. We're starting to see that in today's society. Photographers and bakers in the issue of same-sex marriage. Think of the social life of an early Christian. Most feasts were held in the temple of a god, little g-god. In most of the pagan animal sacrifices, a large portion of the meat was returned to the worshiper who would share it with relatives and friends. Even most ordinary meals began with a pouring of a cup of wine in honor of the little g-gods. Christians at that time had to remove themselves from many social circles. Think even of their home lives. One member of the family becomes a Christian and the rest didn't. Created split families to the point of being an outcast. Some cultures in the world today, that still happens. It happens sometimes here in Thailand. It happens especially with Muslims. One becomes a Christian and they are an outcast and many times under death threats. And some of the torture that faced the early Christians was horrific. They were thrown to the lions or burned at the stake. And believe it or not, those were the lucky ones. Nero had several very nasty habits. One was to wrap Christians in pitch and set them on fire and use them as human torches in his garden. He also sewed them in the skins of wild animals and sent his hunting dogs to tear them up. Molten lead was poured hissing upon their bare bodies. Their hands and feet were burned while cold water was poured over them to lengthen the agony. These were the dangers that they needed to accept if they took their stand with Christ. And all of this because they placed Jesus ahead of Caesar. Verse 10 explicitly states that the only persecution that is blessed is that which is rooted in allegiance to Jesus and living according to his standards. We should not compromise our faith to avoid persecution. Maybe many of us have seen the example of the very long rope and the very end of it has a red dot or maybe just an inch of red ink on it. And that red ink represents our life. And everything after that, if we could stretch a rope from one wall to the other wall, and even that wouldn't come close to grasping the totality of it, is eternity in one of two places. And we are so focused on that little bit of red that we forget about the rest that comes after it. It's because of what comes after it that we can and must rejoice even when we are persecuted. When we suffer as a Christian, we're not alone. We're not the first. We won't be the last. 
the Bible and history are filled with examples of those who have suffered for their faith. When an enemy of your king persecuted you, that was one of the most significant marks of being a servant of that king. If we are persecuted for being Christians, it is a mark for serving King Jesus. We live in a world that is rapidly becoming more aggressive in its hatred and persecution of Christians and our beliefs. Other religions, Islam and Hinduism, are openly violent to Christians. Certain countries, North Korea, China, although in their defense they just don't like any religion, India, just a few countries of many more that persecute Christians. Even Western culture, with its slipping morality and ethics, is becoming more and more anti-Christian. The Western culture has a tolerance for any definition of truth, unless it's Christian in nature, when intolerance is okay. And Jesus never taught a prosperity gospel. Rather, he taught a persecution gospel. But our promise does not exist in the little red dot on that rope. Our promise exists in everything that comes after it. We look forward to a better world, a perfect world, a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation 21, 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea no longer existed. I also saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throat said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Write, because these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give water as a gift to the thirsty from the spring of life. The victor will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Is there anything that we can look forward to more than this time when we're in the presence of God in this broken, sinful world is destroyed in a new heaven and a new earth, and the new holy city of Jerusalem comes down, and God comes to us, and we dwell with him. But I would be negligent not to read verse 8. But the cowards, unbelievers, vile, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is a second death. We have a choice. We live in a world that values self-centeredness, pride, personal security, and survival. Our hope and victory lie in understanding that God will invert our marginalized status in the eyes of the world and grant us eternal compensation. Our true home is in the New Jerusalem. And this message is not a work-based righteousness as Jesus is addressing disciples, but like James, the Gospel of Matthew emphasizes that a changed life 
is evidence of a commitment to Christ. So in conclusion, I challenge each of us to do a self-examination and ask ourselves some hard questions. Are we a follower of Jesus or are we just a fan? Do we really believe we are spiritually bankrupt without God and mourn our sinful, depraved nature and value Jesus above everything else in the world? Do we exhibit strength under control and confront that which goes against absolute truth that is contained in Scripture? Do we truly long for righteousness and grant mercy to others, even to those that have caused us great pain? Are we a light that shines in the darkest gloom? And do we build relationships that grow God's kingdom? And are we ready to suffer for the sake of the gospel, having full trust and knowledge that whatever may happen here, we have a glorious home waiting for us in heaven? Impossible in our flesh, yes. But our identity is not in our flesh. Our identity is in Christ. And Christ overcame. So let us exhibit the characteristics that Jesus talked about. Let's, let us make a difference in the world instead of being shaped by the world. Let us pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.